Welcome to Climate Optimists. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks as always for tuning in and Happy New Year. I guess we haven't talked since we went on break. How was how was your Christmas? Santa, good to you? Yeah, man. I'm pretty easy on Christmas time, as long as everybody else is happy. Sometimes, you know, you can get stressed out around the holidays about that stuff. You know what I mean. Yeah. I, oh, I definitely know what you mean. It can get a little it can get a little crazy. But I really liked it. It was fun. It was nice and relaxing. And, you know, the kid, he's getting to that point where he understands the whole Santa thing. So, you know, it's pretty cool to, to witness that whole deal. But they're also pretty brutal about just being honest, you know, like <laughs> no filtering built this bike. And, you know, he gets it and he's like, he could care less about that bike, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, nah, he, he just he just isn't old, quite old enough to get it. How about you? Yeah, I like your uh, your take on that. If everybody else is happy, I'm happy. I think yeah. it's kind of kind of the same thing. I'm long since grown out of the need for for gifts. It's it's the stress <laughs> of making sure that the gifts that I get for others are, oh, are up to par. Yeah, I was on a rough couple weeks there, just <laughs> struggling for ideas, and then just about like a week and a half before Christmas, I had this epiphany on what I was going to get for Amy and that, that really saved me. Otherwise I might not be talking to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice man. I'm glad that I'm glad that everything turned out. Yeah, me too. So as we, we head into a new year, I think it's always a, a good opportunity to, to maybe reflect and think about making change. And, you know, with that in mind, we thought it'd be a good opportunity to focus today's episode on the key accomplishments of last year, and then where we want to focus in the year ahead. Are you a uh, New Year's resolutions guy? Not really. And if I did, they'd probably last three days. I probably, I probably should though set some some goals. It'd probably be a good thing. You're right though. The follow through is the hard part. Oh man, yeah. It's easy to yeah. You can just say whatever you want, but it's hard to get it done. It's like all those people who uh, set that fitness goal. That's why the you know. <laughs> The gym's crowded for about the first three weeks of the year, and then it goes away after that. Then it just falls fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can come up with some uh, ways to help craft some, you know, resolutions around climate, yeah. so that uh, they don't they don't fall by the wayside. That, that's the that's the one. Yeah. Before we go there, let's start with this week's reason for hope. So over the holidays, Denmark um, decided to join Sweden in planning to make flights fossil fuel free by 2030. So basically eliminating all uh, emissions associated with domestic flights. Nice. There was a, yeah, there was a nice article published by the BBC about it. And while, you know, I think we recognize that being able to make flights carbon free isn't sort of currently possible, I think... In my mind, the important part of this is that it creates a you know a signal to to industry and all those innovators that we really need to come up with alternatives. And you know we've talked about some of these in some of our other episodes, but you know things like biofuels, you know technology that's focused on taking the CO two that's captured from the atmosphere and turning that into a fuel. And you know I read that in the BBC article that Airbus is actually working on a plane that could you know run on hydrogen and mm. I think they're targeting 2035 by that. So again, getting to air travel that's fossil fuel free is not something that's going to occur overnight, but I think it's it's encouraging to see these countries putting these aspirational, you know, targets out there 
And then hopefully that drives the, you know, the real work that's needed to get us to a place where we have, you know, fuels that, that are, you know, effectively net zero. Right. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So as we, we think about this last year, I thought that, you know, it might be good for us to, to talk about what our favorite topic was in the podcast. I mean, the reality is we just launched, you know, this past August. So, you know, if we look back over the last five months, what was your favorite topic? Oh gosh. I have a couple of them probably. I re- I liked doing the nuclear power one. That one interested me a lot, um, which isn't something you think somebody would say, but no, I, I really enjoyed reading and learning about that. Uh, you know, it seems to be safer overall than what you would have thought going into it, at least for me anyway. We learned things like, you know, nuclear produces 20% of US power and that's carbon-free energy. So it seemed kind of bananas to me that some of these countries and even here in the US to an extent, but not not as much, are shutting down working nuclear plants, you know, before their end of life to kind of meet these goals they've set, but really can't be tied too much to carbon because they're burning more fossil fuels to replace it. So that doesn't really make any sense. So yeah, that was a topic I I thought was pretty pretty fun. And I liked the when we got into plant-based meat, just there's a lot of science behind, you know, how they're putting all this together. You know, it's not like they're just grinding up some cauliflower or something, you know. It's it's very uh specific how they're getting the kind of these meat <laughs> substitutes. Um I thought that was cool. You know, an impossible burger is 89% less greenhouse gases than, you know, typical beef, right? So it's pretty crazy when you look at, look at those kind of numbers. What were some of, what were some of your favorites? You know, similarly for me, our discussion about, you know, kind of the footprint of meat and the advancements in plant-based protein alternatives was, was really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, I was, I was surprised at the level of science that's, that's gone into the creation of these, these meat alternatives. Yeah. I I definitely, you know, while I knew, you know, livestock was certainly a source of emissions, I didn't appreciate that it was, you know, close to 15% until we, you know, until we did the episode. And, you know, while I knew that plant-based protein creates less emissions than, you know, than meat, I, I don't think I appreciated how dramatic the difference was, right? I mean, you've got producing a kilogram of, of let's say, beans creates, you know, two kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions, but creating a kilogram of, let's say, chicken, you're at 10 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions, pork at 12, and and then beef at 71. I mean, it's just, it was yeah, crazy amazing. to me how, how drastic the differences were. And, and the same is true, you know, looking at the use of land. I mean, the fact that, you know, raising meat accounts for roughly 80% of our agricultural land and, and only supplies about 17% of our food. And yeah, so... I guess yep. with all that in mind, it really leads to these big opportunities, right? I mean, big opportunities that can be created with just small adjustments, right? If everybody changed their habits just a little bit, you have free up all this land for, you know, things like bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. At the same time, you, you know, massively cut emissions. It just seems like one of those things where a little bit can, you know, really register improvements. Yeah, agreed. I guess methane kind of leads into our next segment here, right? With, you know, what we accomplished here in 2021. 
one one of the things that I remember from COP26, which we we covered in a, in a couple episodes, was uh, the methane pledge, and a uh, hundred nations have pledged to cut you know global methane by thirty percent or more between now and twenty thirty. That's pretty huge. Yeah, that's massive. I mean, yeah, you know, huge success for sure. Now it's just getting the follow through. Yeah, we'll see what happens, right? Um, <laughs> and then the Keystone XL pipeline project died again. It seems like that thing's been... <laughs> Maybe it's still not dead. I don't know, you know, because there's a lawsuit, you know, to fight this thing. So but that's been going on for forever, right? Since the Obama years. I mean, Obama killed it a couple times and Trump tried to revive it. And then, you know, Biden killed it again. I just don't know if there's really... I don't know if there's support for it anymore. Maybe it'll stay dead this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I'm interested in seeing it be resurrected again. Right. Uh, and I think you're right about the, you know, sort of the public support piece. I don't, you know, I don't have figures in front of me, but there's been a huge effort to really halt additional fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, in this country and, and you know, globally. And mm-hmm. I think the Keystone XL is just another example of that. Yeah, probably one of the biggest ones. Well, when I look at successes of 2021, one of the ones that stands out for me is, you know, the adoption of electric vehicles. If we, you know, we look at sales of electric cars in the U.S., the the final numbers are, you know, still being assembled. But, you know, if you take just the first 10 months of the year, there was almost a near doubling of EV sales compared to 2020. Um, which is massive. Yeah. You know, that equates to about 350,000 more electrical vehicles on the road. I'm not sure if we credit all of that to the sales pitch that you made in a, in our EV episode. I mean, probably should. <laughs> I should probably be on the hook for some of that money. <laughs> we could put it into the podcast. <laughs> in seriousness, it, it is really heartening to see something like that taking place. And, you know, it's going to need to double many more times over the mm. next few years to get us to where we need to go. But it, it's encouraging to see that ramp up take place in, you know, in just a year. Yeah. You know, the other interesting part of that was when you kind of peel the layers back, it really was, you know, Tesla and Chevy that drove the, you know, the bulk of the sales. Right. And, Folks that are, you know, are in tune know that, you know, the federal tax credit for the for Chevy and Tesla expired a couple of years ago. And so the fact that those manufacturers are still able to sell and, and increasing their sales of electric vehicles, I think is a positive sign. Yeah. You know, in my mind, it doesn't negate the need to have a tax credit in place. I think, you know, to get the kind of adoption we need, we're going to need to have a federal tax credit in for place sure. across the board. But yeah, I, I just thought that was another positive element of that is the fact that these manufacturers are still able to grow their sales without, you know, the federal tax credit. Yeah, agreed. Which kind of leads, you know, to the next point here that GM announced and Ford announced to basically phase out uh, gas-powered cars and by 2035 in GM's case, and I think 2040 in Ford's case. So yeah. just crazy that those two companies would would have agreed to something like that you know i mean i would have never even have thought five years ago i don't think that they would have announced something as bold as that but it's really cool you know and these these blue oval cities that ford 
is investing in. You know, they're putting in a lot of money into this, like more than $11 billion. And uh, it's going to create a lot of jobs. So it's a really cool effort. Yeah. I mean, when you roll back the the tape and look at, you know, who killed the electric car, (laughs) Ford and GM were high on that list. Yeah. It is a, a massive transformation. And I think, you know, while it's easy to sort of say, well, hey, we now we need the other, you know, we need the Toyotas and the Volkswagens to join too. I think it's worth it's worth, you know, celebrating the the turnaround that these two manufacturers have have made. It's weird when you mention those four companies and which two have made the pledge. Yeah. You know, you would have never have thought that. No, I would have thought Toyota and, and VW would have been ahead. Yeah. So I think the other the other thing for me that was a real success in in twenty twenty one that maybe isn't super exciting for a lot of folks was the, you know, the EU as part of their latest round of, of climate talks, um, passing a carbon border adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've talked about kind of what those are on, on other episodes, but basically it's a, you know, effectively a, a tariff on CO2 intensive materials in this case, you know, steel, aluminum and fertilizer. And, you know, so those countries that are, looking to sell goods into the EU and don't have climate targets in line with what the EU has are going to get hit with that that border adjustment. And I think the most important part of that is that it really is a tool for helping influence other countries like, you know, China, Russia, et cetera, um, to follow suit in terms of climate targets. Because, you know, the reality is there aren't a lot of levers we have that we can pull to to pressure other nations. But I think a border adjustment, you know, is in many ways a perfect tool because it, you know, it speaks to the dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. So lots of good things to celebrate in 2021. Definitely a lot more work to do in 2022. Um, so I, I thought we'd talk a little bit about where we think the focus needs to be and, you know, kind of what excites us and as we look into the next year. Top of the list for me is certainly getting Build Back Better passed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 550 billion, you know, in, in climate investments is essential to the U.S. meeting its 2030, you know, climate goals. It, it also is key if we're going to hope to exert any sort of pressure on other nations. We can't talk about the need to, to reduce carbon emissions if we're not, you know, walking the talk ourselves. Right. You know, Senator Joe Manchin pulling his vote before Christmas was a little bit of a dagger to the heart, but I'm I'm optimistic yeah. that there's still a path. I don't know if uh, we need to think about throwing them a couple billion and to help invest in, you know, West Virginia transition and out of coal or maybe some houseboat <laughs> updates for the guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's odd that this whole mansion kind of coming out at Christmas and saying, no, I read an article about how the white house was uncivil toward Joe Manchin and they, cause they put his name in a press release and, I don't really understand how it could be uncivil. I mean, they basically just said, yeah, we've been talking to Joe Manchin and uh, we're working on it. And they didn't even like, they didn't blame, they didn't say anything about him. Like, yeah, he's a real jerk and he's holding this whole thing up. You know, there was nothing uncivil about it. I'm like, this is uncivil. I don't understand that. I think in his case, there's probably some different tactics that, that could be employed. And I'm not saying that, you know, having a stick isn't beneficial, but you really want to have a carrot and that, you want positive reinforcement. Yeah, you do. And that for me kind of leads into the fact that while there has been all this focus on Manchin, and in some ways rightfully so, 
I think we really need to step back and remember that not a single Republican in the Senate has been supportive of the climate provisions in Build Back Better, right? Yeah. And so we got to continue the negotiations with Manchin, find a way to strike a deal, but we also need to have political consequences really for any senator that's you know failing to act on climate change. True, true. But Manchin is a Democrat. <laughs> so I don't understand how he can act mad. He's like, the president wants to speak with me about supporting something he wants. How dare he? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> dude, you're in his party, man. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's it's a little uncharacteristic. That's for sure. So one of the other, I think, pillars that we need to focus on in, in 2022 is really getting some more aggressive targets in place national targets leading into COP27. So for folks that listened to you know our episode on COP26, there, there was some incremental progress around national targets, but many nations are, are lagging and the targets they you know, currently have fall into the category of like you know, highly insufficient. And so if we're going to get the, the 50% reduction in, in emissions we need by 2030 and net zero by 2050, we're going to have to have these lagging countries step up their their goals and so that's going to take a lot of pressure you know from the US you know from Europe but you, we've got to get the the Australias the Brazils the Chinas the Indias to put forth targets that are going to get us to where we need to be i mean there, there's the whole you know implementation of those targets right that that is even harder but how we can't we can't start with this and have a, a chance of getting there if we don't have you know targets that produce the emission reductions that are that are necessary yeah good point thanks todd <laughs> i think the other big opportunity in my mind is working to combat you know climate disinformation for those folks who tuned into our episode before the holidays you know we had Kathy Mulvey from the New Concerned Scientists sharing about, you know, all the different places where the fossil fuel industry is doing harm when it comes to climate action. And while there's progress being made, there's still lots of work remaining. You know, we've got lobbying that is still going on behind the scenes against any sort of, you know, climate legislation by the fossil fuel companies. There's sort of that dynamic we talked about where they're saying one thing publicly, but then behind closed doors, they're saying something else. Right. We've got this kind of network of things that they fund that are focused on spreading falsehoods about either sort of the the scope of the problem and the urgency. And and then, you know, you've also got the, the greenwashing that's going on. I think my blood pressure notches up every time I see one of ExxonMobil's ads about, you know, all the the things that they're quote unquote doing to to deal with climate action, when in reality they're really doing everything they can to avoid mitigating climate change. Yeah. I thought your blood pressure just went up there when you were talking about it. <laughs> you were like, my blood pressure, there was silence. I thought you were going to bust a blood vessel or something. <sighs> you know, it, it just, <laughs> it's a sore spot for you sure. Know, one thing I want to get to this year uh, in a podcast or maybe more is the some of the disinformation on social media, you know, some of that staggering just about how much of that stuff is getting pumped out there. There was a nonprofit did a analysis of some data and there are like more than 195 Facebook pages and groups and they found an estimated 45,000 posts, you know, denying climate change. And, you know, these things get like millions of views and people buy this stuff, you know, 
And another thing that blows your mind is the there's like 10 publishers are responsible for like nearly like 70% of the content out there. You know, so it's not like there's a bunch of people behind this. There's just a small group pumping out a lot of material. So it'll be cool to to check that problem out. Yeah, and, and how much of that links directly back to to you know big oil and you know right. fossil fuel companies right um, yeah i think it's a lot of the same stuff just online right social media is just another great you know megaphone for them to spread their you know their propaganda message right but you know it's pretty maddening when you think about the fact that the house is burning down and, and these guys are trying to tell everybody that that you know those flames aren't really fire you know and, and the smoke <laughs> isn't really smoke you know yeah exactly so as we think about what needs to be done in the next year, I think it's natural that we sort of ask ourselves, what can we as individuals do to make a difference? And so in thinking about the question, I think it's really worth considering uh, a quote by the polar explorer, Robert Swan, that I really like. He says, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. For me, it really drove the point home that you know we can't assume that government or business you know, or even, you know, the great environmental NGOs that are out there have it covered, right? I mean, the the stakes are way too high to just assume that, that somebody else is going to do it. And, you know, I think to some degree, the reason we, you know, set out to start this podcast was really about that very thing, right? The fact that, you know, if if we don't all find a way to contribute to the problem, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to be solved. So then that leads me to, you know, what... What are you doing, Tata Shida, <laughs> to help the climate in 2022? Man, that's it's like Smokey the Bear pointing at you. It's like that joke. <laughs> you, only you give <laughs> her fire. Yeah, I'm going to be eating a possible Whopper a couple times a day. And that's going to be my part in this whole thing. <laughs> Speaking you of could, though, I joke. I mean, you were talking about Disneyland. You could, you could, you guys could ride your bikes down there. <laughs> yeah, that would be pull your luggage in a trailer. <laughs> I'd never make it back. You know, I guess speaking of Impossible Burger, though, I, I do think one of my goals is probably to find you know more meat alternatives for a personal goal, and then also kind of how to like get more into the advocacy piece of it too, and just explore that and spend more time in that in that area that's that's what i'm thinking about doing what what about you or do you have do you have any i mean you're pretty busy doing climate stuff as it is what are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> live in a tent or something <laughs> well you know in line with your comment about advocacy i'm gonna try to commit to calling one of my legislators each week and you know press for climate action so you know we've well, got our senators we got our representative in the house and then you know state level legislators as well and you know i think if i can do it weekly just rotate between them and just gives you something that you can feel good about you know doing your part on a on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. that'd be huge and thinking about resolutions for this next year and you know we encourage everybody to take some time to think about what you're willing to commit to 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 support climate action i think we have sort of the personal action category you know, and then advocacy and personal actions, you know, are beneficial because they, you know, in my mind, they give us something tangible in this, you know, this long journey to get legislation passed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody needs to become like a, you know, a climate missionary here, but, you know, taking the time to have a conversation with friends or family members um, can, can take that individual action that you, you make, like moving to renewable energy or buying an electric car and ensure that it has a, a bigger effect, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't feel comfortable having those conversations with friends and family, just send us their name and phone number and toddle. Call them on your behalf. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll take care of it. In seriousness, though, you know, there's a number of, you know, personal actions that, that are out there. And, you know, some of them are actually relatively easy and, and have a big impact. You know, things like switching to renewable energy, eating more, you know, plant-based. Another high-impact item is, you know, cutting your emissions associated with transportation. So looking at buying or leasing an electric car, I know that's not necessarily, you know, financially a, a small decision to make, but encourage, you know, folks to think about what they can do to, to cut back on those transport emissions. And then, you know, in that same vein, if you're, you know, if you're doing any flying, focusing on, you know, offsetting all of your flights with, with carbon offsets. So those are all helpful actions that each of us can take on our own. Mm-hmm. I take personal actions and those make me feel good because it's something I can control, but it's not going to be enough to, to move the needle. You know, I mean, they're just yeah. they're things we should all do because it's the right thing to do, but it's not going to happen without advocacy. It's hard. You know? Yeah. Well, it kind of has to be done by the government because it, who else will do it? You know, it's like, I think, what was it Noam Chomsky that's like, you know, you can't go buy a mass transportation system, you know? No. It's not like going to the grocery store and getting it, you know? So it's like, there's only a handful of ways it's going to get done. Yeah. So in addition to personal action, I think the piece we should all be thinking about in the new year is, is what kind of advocacy work we're willing to get involved in. And when I'm talking about advocacy, I mean, you know, pushing our legislators and our businesses to to really to do the right thing on climate. And the reality is, while it's not always sexy work, it's it's the only way that we're going to get the emission reductions we need to hit, you know, these climate targets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the reality is these days there's a lot of ways to do that, whether, you know, posting on social media, sending an email, you know, picking up the phone and calling your legislator, you know, attending meetings with your, your legislator, you know, depending on what you feel comfortable doing, there's plenty of avenues to, to get involved. So just encourage everyone to think about, you know, what feels right for you and, you know, setting, setting a target for the new year that, you know, is focused on, on advocacy, you know, in terms of next steps, I would encourage everybody to, you know, find a friend or family member to kind of be your accountability partner, figure out, you know, what are those, you know, actions that you want to pursue in the next year, write them down, put them in a place where you won't forget. And then, and then, you know, set aside some time proactively on your calendar. The reality is we're all busy. And if we don't set aside time, it, it won't happen. That's for sure. How's that for a sermon? Amen. <laughs> Once you've taken an opportunity to figure out what you're going to do for climate, send us your send us your goals. Um, we'd love to hear hear what you're planning to do, and you know helps us raise the bar for ourselves. And I think the reality is the more we all you know share what we're planning to do, it helps you know build that excitement and ultimately the energy we need to follow through. So I think that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. 
Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. <laughs>